All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. So if you're one of the supporters of the listener's commentary and this entire online ministry, let me just say from the bottom of my heart, thanks a ton for your faithful support and your generosity. It is not only benefiting you, but uh, thousands of other people all around the world. So I'm grateful for you and thank you so much. And if you've been blessed by this ministry, whether you are a financial supporter or not, one of the best things you can do for it is to share it with people. Share it with your friends, share it with uh, your Bible study group, share it with your pastor, share it with your church. Just let people know so that it can help other people find it so that they too can receive uh, encouragement and biblical understanding through the listener's commentary. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. And we're still part of that second major section in the letter of 1 Corinthians that we said goes from chapter 5 all the way through this chapter, chapter 7. And this second major section deals almost exclusively with matters related to sexuality and marriage. But there is a little bit of a shift at the beginning of chapter 7. Notice that chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. And we talked about this in the introduction to the letter, um, that a lot of scholars divide the book here at this point. So they see chapters 1 through 6 as things Paul heard about, and then chapters 7 through 16, things the Corinthians wrote about. And here we then would begin in that configuration, kind of a, another chunk of the letter. And in the introduction to 1 Corinthians, we said that that's only somewhat true. Only some of the topics in chapters 7 through 16 are ones that the Corinthians wrote about. There's actually topics in those chapters that Paul had heard about as well. And so I don't think that's the best way to organize the book, though it's helpful to recognize Paul heard about some things from the Corinthians. He got a letter from the Corinthians, and some of the things he talks about are things they wrote about. So I think that's important to recognize. I just don't think that's the best way to organize the entire book. Plus, not only do I think... Um, it's not best because there's things Paul heard about in the second half of the letter as well. Uh, that division between 1 through 6 and 7 through 16 doesn't really help us grasp the content. If you divide the book that way, it doesn't tell us anything about the subject matter of those two sections. So I think personally that it's more useful to arrange the book of 1 Corinthians by subject matter than by source. So, while the source of the issues in chapter 7 is a letter from the Corinthians to Paul, the subject matter is still sexuality and marriage. And that's the same as we saw in chapter 5, where there was a, an issue of sexuality and sexual immorality. Uh, it's the same as we saw in chapter 6, 12 through 20, where there were people that were uh, going to visit the prostitutes, and Paul had addressed that. And so we're still in this topic of sexuality and marriage here in chapter 7. In fact, Chapter 7, 1 through 9, what we'll look at specifically in this recording is actually, it seems like, the flip side of chapter 6, 12 through 20. In chapter 6, 12 through 20, the issue is uh, 
sex with prostitutes. And the way it's discussed there is the Corinthians are like, or at least some of the Corinthians are like, sex is just a bodily appetite like food. So you're free to satisfy that bodily appetite with prostitutes. In chapter 6, 12 through 20, Paul says, no, that's flat out wrong. But is sex bad? Well, no, sex is God's idea. He invented it and he has a design for it. And that design is marriage between man and woman. And apparently some in Corinth were taking the other extreme view. So you have some that are saying, it's just a bodily appetite, uh, live and let live, even if that means go to prostitutes. But some in Corinth were taking the other extreme view, saying the most holy way to live is no sex, even in marriage. So even if you're married, you need to abstain from that because that's more spiritual and more holy. Um, so Paul now has to address that issue as well. So chapter 7, 1 through 9 deals with sex and marriage. And then in the rest of the chapter, you get other things like singleness and sex. You get marriage to unbelievers and divorce. You get young people who are betrothed. And so there's just a handful of questions and topics related to sexuality and marriage that show up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that's motivated by a letter that Paul got from the Corinthians. And chapter 7 breaks into two parts with a centerpiece that deals with the rationale for the advice Paul is giving. So you get chapter 7, 1 through 16, that's marriage and sex and divorce. And you get chapter 7, 25 through 40, and that's marriage and young betrothed people. That's 7 through 25 through 40. In the middle of between those two, in 7, 17 through 24, you get that centerpiece that where Paul kind of illustrates the rationale underlying a lot of his instructions in this chapter. And one of the things that makes what Paul says in this chapter about marriage and divorce and sexuality, one of the things that makes all of that a little bit difficult for us to hear or grasp, at least in cultures like here in America or in Europe, cultures of the modern West, we struggle with hearing what Paul has to say because we approach marriage so differently. Our reasons for marriage are different. Our expectations in marriage are different. Our assumptions about sex in marriage are different. Just the whole way we approach it is very different. So we have to understand at least some things about marriage in their world in order to hear what Paul is saying clearly and make the best sense out of what we can. So let me just give a little introduction real briefly and real generically, to marriage in a Roman city like Corinth. In the Greco-Roman Empire of the first century, what, what was marriage like? Well, marriages were arranged uh, by the parents, and there typically was a betrothal period, what we would kind of call an engagement. It was a little more formal than that, but a betrothal period that typically lasted one to two years, sometimes a little longer, uh, but um, during the first century, the Roman Emperor Augustus sought to kind of improve the state of marriage by saying, no, betrothals can only last two years, no longer. And so that, that was tended to be the length of a betrothal was no more than two years. Uh, marriages in the first century in a Roman city like Corinth weren't primarily motivated by what we would call love or romance or anything like that. Uh, they were more of a family affair, and they had to do with status and honor and sometimes even wealth of the family. Like this was 
two groups of people, two family groups agreeing to say this is a good thing for both of us. And so it had a lot to do with status and honor and even wealth. Now, that doesn't mean beauty didn't play a part. That doesn't mean passion didn't play a part. They did have a part to play sometimes, not always, but sometimes. Uh, but they weren't the primary motivating factor in it. Uh, they were just maybe a small component. Um, not only that, when it came to sexuality in marriage, um, there was one of the major expectations was to bear legitimate heirs. And so marriage was about that in a lot of ways. Like we need to have someone to inherit the family property and the family estate or the family business and to carry on the family name. Um, and so uh, inheritance was important and thus legitimate heirs were important and marriage was about that in a lot of ways. And in fact, some people, we have writings and records of this, some people actually uh, taught and believed that sex and marriage should only be focused on providing legitimate heirs. That was its purpose in marriage, uh, was to provide legitimate offspring and heirs for the family line. Another fact about marriage in a Roman city like Corinth is that men were in charge, not just of the marriage, but of the whole household. They were the pater familias, the head of the family, the head of the household. And thus wives, in many respects, were under their authority. Now, again, there were reforms being made in the first century and there were uh, changes in, you know, what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. And, and in fact, even a Roman a standard for Roman marriage was changing in the first century and oftentimes... Um, wives, when they got married, did not become a part of the husband's household in the same sense they had used to do that. Um, they stayed in some ways under their father's authority. So there was all sorts of changes that were going on in the first century, but wives were viewed as um, submissive to the head of the household in some form or fashion. And the head of the household was the one that was in charge of what happened in the family. Uh, among the wealthy, this is interesting because it's totally different than what we would expect, but among the wealthy, it was quite common for men to go to the banquets or public social events, dinner parties. Wives didn't attend these. They had female companions that went with them to these things, sort of almost like high-end call girls that would go with them to these things. Wives just didn't go to those things, and so that, that was fairly common. Um, and oftentimes those female companions provided, you know, they were friends with benefit, companions with benefits, right? Uh, just very different than what we're used to. And that was just sort of normal and expected. And even though what we would call love wasn't really the chief motivating factor in marriage, it's not to say it never developed. It just wasn't the main value or the main expectation. Marriage was more about partnership and loyalty. And finally, in a Roman city like Corinth, uh, both men and women actually had the right to divorce. The most common way to do it was just simply to leave the marriage. And you'll hear that language in 1 Corinthians 7, just to leave the marriage. Sometimes it was more formalized and documents were signed and all of that. But divorce was easy and it was actually fairly common. And so um, Paul has to address that because people are bringing in some of their cultural values about that into the church. So uh, marriage in uh, a city like Corinth in the first century, different than what marriage is like in the places where I grew up and what I'm used to in my culture, maybe in your culture as well. One last introductory detail that is important before we jump into verses 1 through 9 is that uh, I think it's important for us to pay attention to Paul's tone in this chapter. Um, 
Paul uses uh, a lot more kind of uh, toned down language, not such strong kind of um, authoritative language. He's a lot more like, um, I think this is best, but if you do otherwise, that's okay. There's a lot of those kinds of phrases and that kind of tone in the letter. He says things like, I say this by way of concession, not of command. Or he says, I have no command of the Lord, but I'm offering direction as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. Now, he says all of this, as he points out at the end of the chapter, as one who has the Spirit of God, who speaks on behalf of the Lord Jesus, right? But he definitely seems to use less of that strong tone we saw about uh, prostitutes and more of an advising tone in this chapter. He's working with them and trying to guide them along, and he's giving counsel to them on these important topics related to sexuality and marriage. All right, so with those comments, just to help us understand what's going on in this chapter, let's jump into chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. And once again, Paul begins the discussion by referencing an idea that at least some of the Corinthians had, and then he responds to it. And the first topic in chapter 7 is the topic of sex within marriage. So chapter 7 begins with, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And that last half of the verse, um, pretty much unanimously among scholars, all agree that once again, he's referencing an idea that at least some of the Corinthians have. They think it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And in certain contexts, that's true, right? But in other contexts, it's not. So Paul's got to respond to this and clarify some things with this. And so Paul's gotten a letter from the Corinthians. This is one of the topics in the letter. Um, isn't it more holy and more spiritual? Um, isn't it better, good, if people, even married people, just avoided sex altogether? Some people, apparently in Corinth, have that opinion. There were people we know in the first century world who had that opinion. And now they apparently think that. And they're bringing into the church. So now it's kind of stirring up some, some trouble and some issues in the church. So Paul needs to respond. Here's how he responds, beginning in verse 2. But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. And so very much in keeping with the Jewish culture that Paul grew up in, Paul's response is, no, it's a bad idea to abstain from sex in marriage. Why? Well, because of the reality of sexual immorality. Once you're married, in other words, it's too late to choose celibacy. And the phrase, uh, each must have, when it says each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband, that phrase, each must have, actually reflects a Greek idiom for each must have sexual relations with. That's the idea. Like, So some of the Corinthians are saying, I think it's more holy, it's better, it's good, it's more spiritual if we avoid sex altogether. So even if you're married, I think you should choose celibacy. And Paul's like, no, that's not, that's not the way marriage works. That's not the way sexuality works. And so each person must actually have sexual relations with their spouse. In fact, Paul refers to it in verse 3 as a duty. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Notice the mutuality and the equality of this. This goes both ways. It's not like um, the, the wife can hold out and the husband can demand it or the husband you know, can hold out and the wife can. It's like, no, we work together on this and he calls it a duty. Now, we have to be 
sure, we understand what Paul means by that word duty. It's not a duty in that negative sense of the word duty. Oh, I've got to do that. Um, but what Paul means is it's a key part of married life that each person literally owes each other. That's The word duty has that sense of you owe it to the other person. You've agreed to this. When you got married, you agreed that this was going to be part of your life together. So withholding sex, Paul is saying, in marriage, withholding sex in marriage is a failure to live out your marriage vows. That's the idea of what Paul is getting at. In fact, Paul goes on to say, each person actually in the marriage does not have exclusive rights and control over their own body. Look what he says in verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband also doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's interesting because just like in the previous section at the end of chapter 6, where Paul said our bodies aren't our own, but they belong to Christ. Well, now here he says, in Christ, when you're married, your bodies also aren't your own. They also belong to your spouse. Like, you don't have complete authority or control over that. And this statement, the way Paul words it, is actually quite countercultural. Because the husband was the one who was in charge in marriage. But notice, Paul grants the wife authority here too. She has rights, she has control, she has authority over her husband's body. Um, That is very countercultural in Paul's context. Now, to be clear, the point isn't that either spouse has the authority to do whatever they want to do to the other person or to demand whatever they want from the other person. That's not the point. In fact, that's actually the opposite of Paul's point here. And it's actually completely contrary to Christ-like love. In, in Christ, authority equals service, right? Like, to be in charge means to serve other people. And Paul's point is that each person, the husband and the wife, is obligated to give themselves to the other. Once you're married, Paul is saying, you don't have exclusive rights to your body. And notice, it goes both ways. Husband, wife, wife, husband. And so, because there is a marital responsibility, sexually speaking, to each other, Paul speaks very directly. Look at the verse 5, how he begins. Stop depriving one another. The word deprive is actually the same word that was translated defraud in chapter 6, verse 7, where Paul said, why not suffer the wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It's that same word that's translated defraud there, and it implies the idea of taking something from someone that belongs to them. You're taking something away from them that is actually theirs. And the reason for that here, the reason Paul can call it depriving or defrauding somebody is because of that mutual responsibility and mutual obligation in marriage that Paul just explained. There is a mutual responsibility to each other in marriage when it comes to sex and sexuality. So Paul says, stop depriving one another. And then he gives a bit of an exception. He says in the second half of verse 5, except, and that word translates a whole phrase in Greek. Um, The phrase actually communicates like something kind of indefinite. Like this is not something you have to do, but it might be something you possibly do. That's the idea of except here. It has that sense of indefiniteness about it. So except, uh, so stop depriving one another, except 
by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Notice that this is by agreement. This is mutual agreement. Again, notice the mutuality and the equality in this, that Paul is advising husbands and wives have to be on the same page on this. And he says, for a time, and the language is a very specific time, implying a short period of time, and the purpose is concentrated prayer. So if you're going to abstain, it needs to be by agreement, it needs to be for a short specific time period, and for only for the purpose of a concentrated time of prayer. And then he says, come together again. In other words, return back to normal sexual practice in marriage so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this by way of concession, not of command. Paul recognizes the power of the sex drive and the presence of sexual immorality all around them, and he doesn't want this sort of exception to be sort of like a a common thing, a frequent thing, or a long-term thing. And so he says it needs to be brief, short, and then you need to come back together again so that you're not tempted because of the reality of immorality all around you and the reality of temptation and the reality of the power of the sex drive. But he says, this isn't a command. This is a concession. And so again, he's working with them. Uh, Abstaining from sex for the purpose of prayer in marriage isn't something they have to do. It's a concession, not a command. Um, And Paul says he'll allow it, and he'll allow it for that one purpose only for a short period of time. Then, in verse 7, Paul says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each one has his own gift from God, one in this way and one in another. What is he getting at? Well, Paul is single, and it becomes very clear that's what he's talking about in verses 8 and 9 when you look down at the next verses. So he's addressing people who are widowed or who are single in some regard. And Paul's saying, I get it. Some of you think that being single or um, abstaining from sex, that's more spiritual and more holy. Um, And so Paul's like, yeah, I can wish that all people were even as I myself am, single. And Paul's experienced certain advantages because of his singleness. He'll actually talk more about this in the second part of the chapter down a little bit later. Um, And so having countered the idea that it is You know, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, right? Like some in the church were espousing that idea. And Paul's like, no, no. Um, In marriage, sex is necessary and important. And so he's countered that idea. But at the same time, he doesn't want to overemphasize marriage and sex either. He's trying to be very balanced and he's trying to work with them. And so if you're married, it's not good for you to abstain from sex. It's wrong. But if you're single it might actually be good to stay that way. And that's why Paul says what he says here in verse 7. Yes, I get it that some of you are saying that's the best way to go, and it, it, it might be. I, you know, I could wish that all people were even as I myself am. However, he says, not everyone has that gift from God. Like, some have the gift of celibacy and singleness, and some don't. Some have the gift of marriage and having a godly marriage. And so if you're single, it might just be good to stay that way. But what becomes clear from the things Paul says as the chapter goes on, his reasoning for that is very different than the Corinthians. The Corinthians, at least some of them, are uh, seeing sex as inherently bad or unholy, and thus you should abstain from it. And that's why they would advise singleness, 
That's why they would advise uh, staying away from sex even in marriage. Paul's rationale for singleness, as he'll explain later in verses 33 and 34, is there are actually certain ministry advantages to singleness. There are actually certain things you can do as a single man or woman in service to the Lord that you can't do when you're married. So that's his rationale. Totally different than the Corinthians. But Paul recognizes it's not for everybody. He knows that. Uh, Each person has their own gift from God. Some God enables to live a single life. Others God enables to live the married life. And so having said that, Paul flushes out what he has in mind by that in verses 8 and 9. Here's kind of what he's thinking about in view of what he's uh, read from the Corinthians in the letter they sent him. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I am. And so, like, they currently are unmarried and it is good. Like, all right, you want to talk about something good? It's not good. Hear that connection, right? It's not good for a man to touch a woman. Well, no, in married, you, you don't have that option. Um, to the unmarried and the widows, it's good if they remain as I am. But if they don't have self-control, well, then let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, a couple technical notes here. The first is that word unmarried. I say to the unmarried and to the widows. Paul's very clearly going to address young single people in the second half of the chapter. This particular word, unmarried, can refer to that, to single people in general, or it might actually be best to refer to it as widowers, males who are widowed. Um, Because the Greek language actually had no specific word for male widows. It only had female widows. And so this word here in context, since he talks about um, unmarried and widows, he may be talking about widowers and then deal more specifically with singleness below. It's not totally clear. Either way, his point is largely the same. And Paul's point here, again, working with them by way of concession and kind of trying to help them understand this, he says that if there are some unmarried people or widows and they prefer to remain as they are, well, that's good. That is a good thing. And that's why you need to hear that verbal connection to verse 1 where he uses the word good up there. So again, working with them, agreeing with them where he can't, maybe redirecting them where need be, or pointing out error where need be. On this topic, here's something that actually has the potential to be good. If somebody is widowed or perhaps single in general, it's good if they choose to stay that way. But they don't have to. If they want to get married, and if they're struggling to control their sex drive, he says, then marry. In fact, he says they ought to do it. It's actually a command in Greek. Let them marry in this verse is actually, they must marry. And so if they're struggling to control their sex drive, it's better to get married than to not do that because it's not bad, right? It's a good thing. In fact, when Paul brings this up again in the second half of the chapter, he specifically notes that if you think you should be single but you can't quite do it because you're struggling with your sex drive, he says, then marry. You haven't sinned. Um, And so here he says, it's actually better for you to marry than to burn. (laughs) So it's good to remain widowed or single, um, but it's not necessary. And if you're finding, wow, this is more challenging than I thought, get married, he says, get married. It's better to do that than to burn. This translation says, burn with passion. Um, but literally it's just burn. And some have suggested, well, that's because Paul means burn in hell. That language is actually never used in the New Testament with regard to uh, hell itself, right? 
and the word burn in the Greek language was frequently used for strong emotions, including strong sexual passion. That's what it means here, and that's the reason this translation freed that up with, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so, um, Paul is going to go on in the first part of this chapter, and he's going to give some instructions about divorce, being married to pagans. We'll save that for the next recording, but let's just summarize what, what Paul has said so far. He's disagreed with the Corinthians that abstaining from sex is the most morally good life. Rather, if you're married, sex is an important and necessary part of marriage, and it must not be withheld from your spouse. He's also said that widows and perhaps single people in general can stay single, that that's a good thing. Unless they're struggling to control their sex, sexual desires, then they should get married. That's what Paul has said here in chapter 7, 1 through 9. And this is a really frank and forthright and honest discussion about sexuality and marriage. And it's actually good for us to hear this and for us as Christians to participate in it because sometimes we've avoided these kind of honest conversations. And so let me just offer a couple of thoughts by way of reflection as we wrap up this first section of chapter 7. First, Paul's instructions here are honest that our sex drive is real and it's powerful and that sexual immorality is a real possibility. And we need to be honest about that. We need to be honest about that in the church with single people. We need to be honest about that in the church with married people. And we need to be honest that sex in marriage is important to meet this need for both men and women. Second thought that I have by way of reflection on this is that Paul's instructions here emphasize equality and mutuality in this regard. Part of marriage is giving your body to the other person. And part of the beauty of marriage is giving yourself wholeheartedly, body and all, to your spouse. This is actually a form of loving and serving and caring for her or caring for him. Even Paul's exception clause here speaks of abstaining by, for a time by way of mutual agreement. So mutual self-giving love, mutual self-giving expression is important even in the area of sex in marriage. All right, from here, Paul's instructions are going to focus more on questions directly related to marriage, like divorce and singleness and things like that, uh, than the sexuality part. And we will pick that up in our next recording.